Welcome to WGN-TV Political Report. I'm Paul Lisnick. Coming up. We've called for investigations and you've done nothing. Corruption capital of the U.S. Will lawmakers finally spring to action after a new report details the growing problem? You do things above board, you do them transparently, you do them on announced court dates. For over 40 years, everything I do has been inspected. The Republican candidates for Cook County State's attorney take the debate stage. We've got your preview. And Super Tuesday showdown. Will the Democratic race for president fall to Senator Bernie Sanders? We'll talk about it. Illinois' primary election now just under two weeks away. And today we begin with a race further down on your ballot that will have serious implications for the next decade of the state's justice system. In 2018, P. Scott Neville Jr. became just the second black Illinois Supreme Court justice in the court's 170 year history. And he was appointed to fill a vacancy created by the retirement of Charles Freeman. He was the first African American jurist on the state's high court. Well, now it's time for voters to pick a permanent replacement. There are seven candidates now vying for the position. The competition has reignited the debate over diversity on the bench. And that was evident in a Chicago Bar Association forum with five of the candidates I moderated last week. Take a listen. And it's important because our system is vulnerable to bias, is vulnerable to racism and bigotry. That's why it's important. And it's important because it impacts the customers of the court. It impacts the people who are on the other side of the bench. I'm proud that I'm running on an affirmatively anti-racist platform. I'm the only candidate with a platform. It's also an anti-racist platform. It's anti-sexist platform. It's a platform designed to reduce bias. That includes in who gets to be on the bench, who gets to be on the bar, and who gets to be in the jury box. Secondly, the reason that the, that the rules of, that our decisions in the court are respected is because we have this impression that our decisions are fair and people come to court and they believe they will accept a losing decision if they think they've been heard. However, when you come to court and you see that it's all the decision makers are from one culture, it can this, the people can be disappointed and disillusioned about how effective they are. So I believe that the uh, that uh, diversity should be one consideration. The most important way we can promote diversity is by appointment of judges and that's what would be one consideration for me. I think there are lots of people that feel underrepresented in this state in the judiciary. And because of this important power that the Illinois Supreme Court has, that it is obligatory for the court, all seven members, all seven members to make certain that when these appointments to vacancies, which are only temporary, are filled, that diversity and qualifications are paramount. You know, I've been a judge for over 22 years. We've had uh, three Latinos uh, uh, selected by the Supreme Court to, to, uh, to the circuit court. We've had one Asian. We've had no Muslims, no South Asian individuals uh, that have been named to, uh, to the bench. And I think that's deplorable. We need to expand uh, our you know, horizons. I would suggest that the Supreme Court sit as a body and receive every nomination to have full and fair discussion, taking into consideration gender and ethnicity. When I was the director of the courts, I recognized that we were not collecting that data. We did not know the makeup of our judiciary. And joining me today to talk about the race, Chicago Bar Association member and government lawyer, Nicholas Cantus. Nicholas, thanks for coming in. Thank you. So as we look at this seat, which has been occupied by an African-American, we look ahead and sort of wonder what the future of it is currently. 
Two African Americans who are seeking that seat, one African American female, two men, one female, she actually would be the first ever African American female to serve on the bench, one Latino, he would be the first to serve on the bench. If none of them win the seat, we actually have a, a court with no racial diversity on it. My question to you is, does that matter? How important is having minority representation on the Illinois Supreme Court bench? Well, racial um, diversity. Racial diversity, being able to have a judge and judges and justices who are able to call on their own personal wealth of experience are so important. And for the Supreme Court justices, there are seven seats on that bench. And we have to make room for diverse candidates. And as part of the Chicago Bar Association's evaluation of these candidates, we look to have the strongest candidates to be up for election. And then we also want to make sure that the strongest members of the bar make it to the bench. It helps to reinforce faith in the, in the system. It helps for people on the other side of the bar to look up and see people that are reflective of who they are and who they are in the community. And that's what we'd like to see as the election goes forward. So and that sounds great. The question that comes up is, you know, does politics play a role in all of this? Look, um, the Democrats slate a candidate in this race. This time around, they slated Scott Neville uh, for the race. That means money and power and assistance for him in the race against other non-slated candidates. Do we want to see those kind of politics play in that race? Well, when we're looking at each of these candidates and we evaluate them, we're not necessarily going to look at them, whether they're Republican or Democrat. We're looking at them as individuals and independent attorneys. And so when we evaluate each of the candidates, we are looking to see who is the most qualified. We provide that information for the, for the voters, and the voters ultimately are going to have to weigh whether or not an endorsement is going to um, turn, the, turn the dial to either one of those candidates or not looking out into different um, aspects to educate themselves. And that's why we believe that the CBA evaluations are so important. What should people consider when they are casting their vote? I mean, look, there's sometimes questions come up about candidates. The slated uh, candidate, Scott Neville, there's some issue about a homeowner exemption that has been claimed or was claimed on his deceased mother's home. There's no records to it. Nothing's been proven about that. Uh, so we can't clarify the situation. But the bottom line is, should voters consider those kinds of questions that come up, or is it really about the opinion somebody has written, what they did on a lower bench? Well, that's why we really do like to have our bar evaluations available for people. If they go to chicagobar.org, you will be able to click on a link that goes to all of our evaluations. Now, that's important because when you have issues that are in the media and the press, it allows people who are voters to go and look at different aspects of that candidate. They can look at their evaluations. They can look at our bar evaluations and other um, it, groups that have evaluated the candidates as well as the media and that's all part and parcel of what the voters need to think about when they go to the ballot box. So interestingly this time around almost everybody is an appellate court justice who's seeking the top court seat but we have one candidate Daniel Epstein he's not he's a practicing lawyer uh, he's been with General Block left his job to apply for this uh, this uh, election how important is it that a candidate for the Supreme Court have prior experience or is it not about that maybe a lawyer out of practice is a good thing well, absolutely, I think experience is valuable when we're talking about the highest court in the state of Illinois, and we want qualified judges to be on that bench. And so what we do, and we're evaluating each of the candidates, we have a minimum threshold of about 12 years where candidates are looked at to be qualified. Um, beyond that, or lower than that, um, they're not going to be in that qualified category. There absolutely is room for young attorneys to have their voice and to be learning about the field and to be challenging 
kind of set in stone ways and and I think we should welcome that but when we're talking about the Supreme Court where the term is 10 years we need to be able to look at the whole breadth of someone's career not just the very beginning all right Nicholas thank you for the insight we want people to vote gotta vote on all these these races all right we're gonna take our first break coming up next I would really like to know when you're going to finally tell your leadership that this kind of corrupt culture is not acceptable here in Springfield and finally start doing something about it. Oh, fed up but far from over what a new report says about corruption cases in Illinois and Chicago. Welcome back to WGN TV Political Report. With a bevy of federal raids, indictments, and ongoing investigations, it's no surprise that Chicago remains the corruption capital of the United States. A new report shows over 1,700 federal public corruption convictions in the city from 1976 through 2018. Now, overall, the state of Illinois ranks third, just behind Louisiana and District of Columbia. Taman is in the newsroom with a deeper dive into the numbers. Taman. Dick Simpson is here, former alderman, anti-corruption crusader. Every year, the U.S. Department of Justice compiles total public corruption convictions for each state. Illinois is not doing well. Unfortunately, we're not. Chicago is still the capital of corruption. It's the number one corrupt city in North America. And in addition, uh, Illinois is the third most corrupt state per capita. And these corruption convictions involve what? Shakedowns, money? Well, we have a whole variety of them, and they, they range from very petty kind of theft, like postal employees stealing some envelopes of, that, uh, in the postal service that have some money in them, to much greater ones. We know of a current investigation, for instance, that started with, in 2018 with Alderman Burke. We know about the Sandoval scandal. We know that we have additional Commonwealth Edison problems. Uh, we know that there is a problem of lobbying and uh, the red light cameras in the suburbs. So even though 2018 we still led in corruption, come the end of this year in 2021, we're going to have a bonanza of new corruption convictions. 19,600 public corruption convictions from 1999 to 2018. Do you think there's the need for federal anti-corruption legislation? It's something Elizabeth Warren talks about. There is some need for new legislation. The biggest single thing that would probably help on the prosecution side would be for the state's attorney to actually take cases. The state's attorney does not prosecute corruption unless, it, with the one exception of some police issues. You mentioned there could be more corruption indictments coming from Chicago to Springfield. Can you talk about the impact that, 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 that anticipating those indictments is having on the Chicago City Council? Well, um, it appears that a number of aldermen were caught up in uh, the wire that uh, Alderman Solis wore and the phone calls that Alderman Burke made from his cell phone that were recorded. And so we're expecting to see not just uh, one or two aldermen, but m maybe quite a few more. And uh, once Lori Lightfoot took office, we have had major changes in Chicago. We've outlawed aldermanic prerogative. We've changed the ethics ordinance three times to make it much tougher. We've allowed the inspector general to actually investigate the aldermen and their staff for the first time effectively. We're way ahead of Springfield. Springfield has an ethics commission meeting now, and they're still allowing the legislators to squelch investigations of themselves with their legislative inspector general. 
Indeed, Springfield has to do more. Dick Simpson, good to have you on Political Report. It's always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Paul. Hey, thanks, Taman. We're going to take a quick break. After this, we're going out on the campaign trail. Will Bernie Sanders' campaign momentum continue to the convention? We're talking presidential politics and later. Republicans believe that there is individual responsibility for your acts, something the Democrats have moved away from. Back to the WGN debate stage. The Republican candidates for Cook County State's attorney make their case to voters. Stay with us. Welcome back to WGN-TV Political Report. In the Democratic race for president, experts have warned against putting too much stock in the earliest elections with so little of the American population having yet to weigh in. But all of that will change on Tuesday when 14 states will hold their presidential primaries. Now that long list includes delegate-rich states like California and Texas. When all is said and done Wednesday morning, nearly 40% of the delegates available will be spoken for. Can Senator Bernie Sanders seal the deal or are Democrats headed towards a long contentious summer of campaigning. My next guest is the author of Unlock Congress, Reform the Rules, Restore the System. He's also the president of Golden Mean Strategies. Michael Golden joins us in our WGN studios. Michael, good to see you again. It's great to see you. So Bernie's numbers, when he, you look at him head to head with every other Democrat who's running, actually favor him. Can this be turned around such that the, the moderates will close ranks and consolidate or not? It, the problem is, who, who are they going to close ranks behind? There's no one obvious choice, right? In fact, when Bloomberg, which a lot of people are hoping in the Democratic is the savior you know, of the moderates, when they, in that same poll, when they had him head-to-head -head with every other candidate, every other candidate beat him. And that was before, before the debates. Um, so I'm not sure how much that's improved, but with millions of ads, you never know. So the hard part is that it's sort of this race against the clock. If you're, if you're somebody who wants a consolidation around a moderate uh, and you don't want, you're afraid of Sanders being the nominee, it's a race against the clock because M Bloomberg said, I'm not getting out till the bitter end. Elizabeth Warren just said, I am fighting till the end. I told a lot of young little girls that I have to persist. The reality, they're making these promises the that they're not getting out. The reality is it's easy to get in a race. It's very tough to get out because they all think they're the answer. So we'll see what happens. Let me, let me ask you this. Some people say that Sanders is sort of the Trump for Democrats. And what <laughs> I mean by that is his followers are passionate. Uh, no matter what he does, they, they seem to forgive him. Is that comparison fair? I think it's absolutely fair, and I think it's one of the reasons Bernie Sanders almost beat the Clinton machine four years ago. You know, so much of this, and you know I write about this, is how people are on television. Trump is great on television. You, whatever you think of him, he is a great performer, and so is Bernie Sanders. And whether you think that everything he says is sincere or not, he seems like it, and his followers believe it to a T. Right. And so th they forego some of the other sins or drawbacks or whatever, because they believe he is authentic. He's got my back. It, it, ironically, him and Trump have that in common. And Bloomberg's the other side of that. Indeed, if this is sort of a pendulum in politics, some have said, look, President Obama was an answer to President Bush and President Trump a response to President Obama. Right. So the fair question would be, would Bernie Sanders be the answer to a President Trump? You, he, I would say one of probably seven. That's the funny thing. Any one of these guys is, is an opposite of Trump. David Axelrod said a few years ago, he was on my podcast right after Trump got elected, and he said, Americans almost always choose the diametrical opposite of the president they have, especially if someone's in there for two terms. And if you look back on history, 
he's right. But every one of these candidates is the opposite of Trump because we've never seen anybody before like this president. Do moderates matter anymore? There was a time, and even now, people will say, you got to pick the moderate. The yeah, moderate this, right. this country is, is right of center. It's, it's not progressive. Or do they not matter anymore? Polling is interesting on that. It's a great question. There's a woman named uh, Rachel Bitkofer who, who, who's done this analysis. It's very controversial right now. She picked, she specified 41 seats that the, the Democrats would gain to, in the midterms. And she was one seat away. I think I predicted 35 at the high end optimistically for the Democrats. She picked it on the nose. And her point is, and she goes through the numbers of the last several races, that this is about turnout. It's not about swing voters and moderates anymore. Now, this morning I talked to Celinda Lake, uh, uh, who, who's one of the biggest Democratic pollsters on these issues, and she said, Democrats better not make the mistake of choosing one or the other. You're going to have to turn out every last one in the base, but don't forget those swing voters in those moderate districts. They're still there. Will they swing the election alone? We don't know. Well, you talk about the moderate districts, but let's talk about an, another interesting group of districts. Over 40 districts that in 2018 went from red to blue. That's right. a tough thing to do, but many would say that was a response to the momentum of what's going on in the country. There are those who believe that if Bernie Sanders is at the top of the ticket, forget some of the moderate districts, you run the risk of turning those now blue districts back red because the districts themselves, which would have been Trumpy-type districts, would just never not only go for Bernie, but then might go back in the congressional race as well. All right, so this is this is a really good question. The Democrats, they won 41 seats net. The Republicans need to win 18 to take the House back. Actually, 21 because North Carolina is being redistricted and they'll lose Will Hurd in Texas. So it's really 21. Uh, but a whole bunch of these races have just been downgraded from the Republicans, not as good chances, because Democrats have raised more money. Forget the presidential race, but in the, in the Congress, they've raised more money for those candidates. And Republicans haven't done a great job of recruiting great candidates, especially in the industrial Midwest, where a lot of women won in those swing districts. So, I, you know, it's, it's, it's tempting to say, will the top of the ticket matter across the board? But I would caution people to, if they're curious, to really go in and look at the numbers that are closer to the districts. The data locally, I think, makes uh, more of a difference. And, and frankly, Bernie Sanders' uh, stance on the, economy, uh, on the economy could be attractive to a lot of those districts in the industrial Midwest well, that Trump won. And let me ask you, given that, are the things Sanders is being attacked for, uh, the Castro stuff or her position on guns in the past, being a Democratic socialist are those the issues here or really is it is it beyond that because this is really uh, this is really about president trump or not so there's another there's another issue where it's easy to be attracted to that big shiny object and say oh he's going to scare the you know he's going to scare the bejesus out of everybody with these positions but actually paul i think that when it gets if if sanders were to be the nominee i don't think those things all the socialist all that stuff i think it would be the money that that he's pr proposing to spend 60 trillion that's double the federal budget and you can't do that by just right. taxing the top one or two or five percent and we're going to middle keep, class and we're going to keep an eye on how that goes michael golden thank you so much for being with My me pleasure. one more break and after this this office has been won by a republican five separate times so this is absolutely doable two candidates vying for the chance to represent republicans on the ballot in november more on the race for cook county state's attorney up next Last week, you saw the Democratic candidates for Cook County State's attorney battle it out on the debate stage. This week, it's the Republicans' turn. Pat O'Brien and Christopher Foncook are competing for a chance to appear on the November ballot. They're going after incumbent Democrat Kim Fox and each other. I've worked for Democratic regimes and Republican regimes, and I've done a great job for this office for my entire career. Mr. O'Brien, 30 seconds to respond. In order to be in the office 31 years and never to have been promoted, 
by any of the five state attorneys you worked for. You not only had to be in the trenches, you had to be hiding in the trenches. This is a man who essentially has inflated his resume. He's handled thousands of cases. Well, he's handled thousands of cases. He said subpoenaing material and ordering forensic labs. He can't name one murder case that he tried successfully to a jury or name one case that rose above more than a garage burglary. Mr. Cook, we're going to give you 30 seconds to respond to that. I, in fact, have received a series of promotions through the years. That's why I got to the felony trial division. I wanted to be all my life a trial attorney. I wanted to seek justice for crime victims in the felony trial courts. I didn't want a front office cushion job. I wanted to be there fighting in the front lines. Uh, more importantly, Pat O'Brien left the office 27 years ago. He's out of touch for almost my entire career. He was not around. I fought for crime victims. I tried some of the most serious cases in this county up to All right, sir, and we thank you. Come on. Thank you, Paul. Let's move to a topic that is on the minds of many people in Cook County gun violence. Chicago's murder rate is down overall, but the threat of violence remains high. Already this year, the winter months have seen an uptick in shootings compared uh, to the start uh, over the same period in 2019. Uh, what is your specific plan to get gun offenders off the streets? Mr. O'Brien, we'll start with you. One minute, please. Certainly, and thank you. Gun violence obviously has dominated the county. And I would note that Kim Fox, despite all her talk of focusing on gun violence, in her own statistics in 2019, she lost more gun trials than she won. I have heard from police officers, and I talk to police officers in large numbers every day, that they go to Kim Fox on gun offenses, and they request felony gun charges, and they simply can't get felony gun charges approved. All right, you can catch the full debate tonight on WGN and WGN.com at 6 p.m. That's it for this week. Thanks for watching.